0: Genesis chapter 35, Genesis 35, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 8, and Lord willing, we'll cover the entirety of the chapter in the course of our message this morning, Genesis chapter 35, reading together from verse 1. We read, and God said unto Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau, thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave on to Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings and, which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which is by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. And they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. And we trust the Lord will land his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. We turn now to what is really uh, the closing page in, uh, in Jacob's history in some respects as far as his story goes. Of course, his story will be intertwined with Joseph's story as that uh, now comes up in the course of Genesis. Uh, but we, we turn here uh, from chapter 34 to chapter 35 and really this is a chapter of tying up loose ends. But in chapter 34, you'll recall, it was a chapter full of sin. There we learned about the defilement of Dinah, as well as the massacre uh, of the Shechemites by Simeon and Levi. (coughs) So this was a chapter that was devoid of God. That was really uh, one that uh, detailed the backslidden condition of Jacob and his family. But as we come into chapter 35, we find the very opposite to be the case. This is a chapter that it describes Jacob in his latter days. And now we see that he has uh, not only been saved, but he's sanctified. He's going on with the Lord. He's surrendered. And uh, this is a chapter that is full of the Lord in many respects. Now, it's been 30 years... Since Jacob left home, since he ran away and fled the wrath of Esau and ended up on his uncle Laban's farm. And he bedded down there for a while, for some uh, 20 years, and, and then a further 10 years he spent in Shechem. And he spent in that time in Shechem just been 20 miles adrift from the town of Bethel where God had told him to go to in the first place. So chapter 34 was devoid of God. Well, chapter 35 is full of God. And in chapter 34, we see how Jacob lost his his reputation. But in chapter 35, we see how he loses some of his relatives. He loses a dear nurse. He loses his beloved Rachel. And he loses his aged father. So this is a chapter that really brings us to three gravesites, and the three gravestones, if you like. And each of those gravestones, in a sense, mark a particular moment in Jacob's life. The first gravestone speaks to us of a place of revival. The second gravestone speaks to us of a place of revelation. And the last gravestone speaks to us of a place of reunion. Well let's have a look at that and each gravestone and each place in turn. And we begin in verses 1 through 8 where we've just read. And I love how the commentator John Phillips paints the scene in Jacob's house following the massacre at Shechem. He says this, Everything came to a, decis- to a head with a decisive word from God. Jacob was almost out of his mind. Dinah was sitting desolate in his camp, shamed and a widow before ever a wife, thanks to the fury of her brothers. Levi and Simeon were scowling defiantly about them, giving back the ensconced looks of the camp. The story of last night's dark deeds was spreading the length and breadth of the land. If ever a man needed a decisive word from God, it was Jacob, the morning after the Shechem massacre. And when that word came, there was no mistaking its power. Well, that word came in verse 1 of our reading. Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. And this is where Jacob should have been in the first place, but he had delayed 10 years pursuing gold rather than pursuing God. You know, a lot of people make that mistake. A lot of unsaved people make that mistake. They're far more concerned about success in this world than indeed thinking about the eternity that lies before them after this world. And even Christian people make that mistake. Sometimes we get caught up in materialism and, in, and, in, and personal security, and then we put to, a, to one side the service of the Lord. Well that's exactly where Jacob had been for ten years. But having made a mess of things in his life, God graciously speaks to him again and he gives him direction. Aren't you glad for the perseverance of God? You know, some believers speak of the perseverance of the saints, a doctrine that actually robs believers of assurance. But I prefer to dwell on the perseverance of the Savior. Thank God he persists with us. He tells Jacob it's time to move on. He was to go to Bethel, to where he had fled from Esau those 30 years before. And so he is now on the move again. But this time uh, he is moving uh, not from the wrath of Jacob, from the wrath of Esau, but from the wrath of his neighbors. Friends, there's nothing better for the backslider than to wind his way or her way to Bethel, to the house of of God, Bethel was the place of his conversion. It was a place of of sweet fellowship with the Lord. There he had been given a vision of the Lord Jesus. There he had been born again. You know, there are some places in our lives that have sacred memories. There are places that we can reflect upon where we were converted. You know, it may well be in your living room or in a, in a mission hall or, or elsewhere. And you remember back to that place and at that moment, and it'll always be in your journey a sacred place for you. And Bethel was a sacred place to Jacob. To go back to Bethel was for Jacob to return to his spiritual home. Now, owing to the defilement of Dinah and the violence of his sons, Jacob was now ready to go. He'd had enough. Shechem. And sometimes God does that in our lives. He he may allow us to go out into the world for a while, but eventually we have enough of it and we realize we'd be better off uh, with the Lord and with the people of the Lord. And that's where Jacob was. He'd had enough of Shechem. Look in verses 2 through 4 again. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hands, and all the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Now those gods that are being spoken of were very likely the spoils of the city of Shechem. If you look up to the previous chapter in verse 28, you'll see how they spoiled that city. They took the sheep, the oxen, the asses, and that which was in the city. And then verse 29 says, and they took all their wealth. And so they likely took various amulets and charms that were made of silver and gold and uh, possessed those things, possibly with the intent of melting them down, or maybe they used them for decorative purposes such as the earrings. In Remember too that Rachel was still holding on to Laban's idol. Remember she had stolen Laban's idol as they had left the uh, the farm, and that idol was indeed a sign of his of her inheritance from her father, and she hadn't let go of it. But those amulets, those charms, that idol had no place at Bethel. There had to be complete sanctification. You see, if you're going to serve the Lord, you have to forsake the gods of the past. You have to forsake those things that you're holding on to that belong to the world. You know, you have to rid your life of anything that would hinder you from worshiping the Lord in spirit And in truth. And so there must now be no delay, no discussion. Everything had to go. And so Jacob gathers all of these items in and he buries them under the oak which was by Shechem. Later in Israelite history, Joshua was inspired by these events when he called the people of his day to do much the same thing. Look with me in Joshua chapter 24, if you will. He called upon the people uh, to sanctify themselves unto the Lord as they possessed the land of promise. And I want you to just look at me in a couple of little chain reference of verses uh, through this particular chapter. And beginning in verse 1, it says, And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel. Notice where he gathered them to. To Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel, and for their heads, and for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Verse 14, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away, notice, the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands ye dwell. But as for me and my house, We will serve the Lord. In verse 22, he says unto them, ye are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And then verse 26, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone. And notice, he set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So Joshua came to the exact same place and he tells the people the exact same thing. Put away your idols, do away with your gods, sanctify yourselves, prepare yourselves to serve the Lord. And he takes this moment where Jacob basically cleanses his family of all idolatry and he takes that place and that moment in time as his, uh, his platform by which to call upon the people of Israel to choose ye this day whom ye will serve. You know, some things have to be given up entirely if we're going to surrender to the Lord. Look with me in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Here we have the testimony of the Ephesian church. Notice Acts chapter 19 and and verse 18. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, that is, occultic practices, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God And prevailed. You know, I love that, that they didn't even think so much as to the expense of it all. 50,000 pieces of silver was an enormous sum of money in that particular uh, age, in that particular culture. Yet with all, they were willing to give their all, whatever the cost, whatever the price, they were willing to lay their all on the altar and to have it all burned up in order that they might progress in the things of God. Brother and sister, I wonder what you're holding on to this morning that's keeping you from growing as a Christian. That's keeping you from sanctification. You know I was, I was saved. As many of you know. Uh, and I was saved uh, uh, as a young boy. Uh, out, of a, out, of a drunk, out of a punk rock band. I was a drummer in that band. And sometimes people say to me. Do you still play the drums? And I don't. And I haven't. Going back to that time when I was saved. And uh, you know shortly after I was saved. I was approached by a Pentecostal church who had a coffee bar, and they said, would you come down and play our drums for us? They, you know, I, I can tell you now, I imagine playing drums for a, drunk, for a punk band and, a, and drums for a coffee bar, two different things. But nevertheless, they said, would you come down and play our drums for us? And I said, well, I'll have a think about it. And I thought about it, and I, and I counseled with some people, and one individual said this to me, and, I, and it just rang true with me. He said, you know, God didn't save you out of that to put you back into it. And so I, I took that as, a, as a, really a, as a counsel from the Lord in many respects because you know, the, I, I was, it was true the Lord did not save me out of that lifestyle uh, to put me back into it in some other way. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting for one moment that Pentecostalism equates with punk rock. I'm not saying that at all. But for me personally, that was, a, that was something that really would have drawn me back into the world. That's the point I'm making. It would have taken me back into the world. And so I never, I never held drumsticks again. If you put a drum set in front of me and I wouldn't know what to do with it. Listen, if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And you as a Christian and I as a Christian need to put to bed all of our old past ways and all of our idols and all of the gods and all of the amulets and all of the charms that would have held us there, that would have attached us in some way to the world. And we say, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. So Jacob said, put away the strange gods. Let us arise and go up to Bethel. And that's exactly what they did. But not only did they get rid of their strange gods, if you notice, they had a change of wardrobe back there in in Genesis 35. He calls upon them to change their garments. Put away the strange gods that are among you, in verse 2, and be clean and change your garments. Our old garments typify the old life with all of its sin and with all of its failure. But God in his mercy gives us a new wardrobe. He gives us new garments so that we can make a fresh beginning. And again, if I reflect back to my old life, you know, before I was a Christian, uh, you know, I, I dressed As you would expect a punk rocker to dress, it was all uh, sips and chains and safety pins and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, all kinds of swastikas on my person. And, uh, you know, I used to, you know, have my clothes torn and ripped. You know, I one time dressed so badly, my mother made me go out the back door and over the back wall so the neighbors wouldn't see me. And when I got saved, I didn't know anything. But I knew this. I knew I couldn't go to church looking like that. So I got dressed the best I could Now I didn't have a certain tie to my name but I found the best clothes that I could find and I went to church as I was in those clothes that were my best clothes because I understood that you couldn't carry on as you are And, you know, here we have Joshua, here we have Jacob calling upon his family to have a change of garments. You see the same thing in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, The people are told as Moses prepares to go up Sinai, the people are told to uh, sanctify themselves and cleanse themselves and be ready for that moment and to wash their clothes. Go on to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. That's the words of God to Moses. Let them wash their clothes. Don't have them coming up here, you know, looking slovenly and careless and, and filled with the filth and the dirt of this world. Have them prepared. Hebrews says the same thing in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we should prepare for the worship of the Lord. And, And that's exactly what Jacob was doing with his family. He was preparing them for the worship of the Lord. Hebrews 10 and 22, it says this, Let us draw near unto the Lord with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, get yourself cleaned up before you come into my presence. You know, when I ministered in England, occasionally I would come across these boys and they would criticize me because I would uh, come to services and preach wearing a shirt and tie or a suit and tie. Someone would say, oh, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You can't, come to, you can't come to the pulpit in a suit and tie. People won't come to your church. Well, actually, you know what? In all my years of ministry, I've never had a lost person yet say, "I won't go to church because you're wearing a suit and suit and tie." It's never happened. Never one lost person. It's always some foggy-minded Christian, some woolly-minded preacher, who thinks that somehow or other, if he wears jeans and a t-shirt, the lost are going to come streaming through the doors. What a nonsense! What a nonsense that is! I'm not saying you have to wear a suit or I'm not saying you have to wear a tie but I am saying this, that we ought to be cleaned up. What does it say when we dress down for church? What does that say about our God? What does it say about our attitude toward God? You know, one preacher took me to task and, and he said, you know, I don't wear a tie in the pulpit. He says, I don't, I don't believe you need to dress up. He says, I think people are, are more, relate to you better if you dress down. I said, well, what do you do at a funeral then? What do you do when you have a funeral in your church? He says, oh, well, that's different. He says, I, I wear a shirt and a tie and a suit for a funeral. You know, I wear a suit for a funeral. And I said, well, why would you wear a suit for the funeral? He says, well, you know, you have to have respect for the deceased and for their family. And I said to him, well, listen, why in the world do you dress up in respect for a dead man, but you won't dress up with respect for the living God? You see the, you see the contradiction? One fellow says to me, oh, he says, you and your fancy suit, he says, you're, you're putting people off. There he was standing there. Fancy suit, I thought myself. I bought my suit and in on 65 quid. He's standing there in a pair of Nike trainers. 130 pounds I'm sure. His jeans were 100 pounds. His designer t-shirt was about 75 pounds. What he was wearing to look casual was four or five times the price of what I was wearing to look smart. But somehow or other I was the one that was putting people off and saying that you had to be wealthy to come to church No, I don't think so. Look, listen. I don't want to camp here, but we're told they changed their clothes before they went to the house of God. They prepared to worship the Lord. And surprisingly, as they go, they have a safe passage. No one attacks them, even though their name is mud in that area, even though they, their reputation is in tatters, even though they're seen as a threat to the natives. Nobody, nobody bothered them, possibly because they were intimidated by, the, intimidated by the ferocity of the attack upon the Shechemites, and certainly because they were under the protection of Almighty God. And so they went to Bethel. No lagging, no dragging, No stopping along the way. It was total surrender. It was complete obedience to the word of God. And what memories Bethel had for Jacob. Memories of that night 30 years before when he had seen a ladder stretching up to the heavens. That ladder picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. Memories of that night when he bowed his heart to the Savior personally, no longer relying upon the faith of his father or his mother, but now he made their faith his faith. Now it was real for him. It wasn't just what they believed, it was what he believed. Where were you when the Lord saved you? Do you remember? Do you remember where you were? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not saved. Maybe this could be the place where the Lord saves you. Maybe today you could surrender your heart and life to Jesus and say, I went to church one Sunday morning and found Christ. What a blessing that would be. You know, it's a good thing to remember where and when you were saved. I've been asked in a couple of weeks' time to go to Rathfraland Baptist Church and share my testimony. It's been many years since I shared my testimony, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I was on a, on a cycle of it for a while. I got on the testimony circuit one time and I was doing it every other week. But it's been many years since I've been asked to come and share my testimony. And they have asked me to come to Rathfriland. And I must admit, when they first asked me, I was sort of like, oh, I'd rather preach. <laughs> but as I reflected upon it, I thought, it's a good thing for me. Even, you know, regardless of what the church is wanting out of that testimony, it's a good thing for me to go and rehearse my conversion and remember where I was the night the Lord saved me. I love the story of a pastor who had a visiting speaker. And each night he would have a deacon driving the visiting speaker home. The deacon would be in the, uh, in the driving seat, the visiting speaker would be in the passenger seat, and the pastor was in the back of the car. And as they were driving toward the hotel where the, where the visitor was staying, he, the pastor would say to the uh, deacon, he'd say, Brother John, why don't you tell our, our, our brother here about how you got seated? So John would tell the story. He told the story the first night. And the visiting speaker was very interested. He said, that's a very good good testimony. I'm very glad to hear it. But the second night, the pastor said, Brother John, why don't you tell uh, Brother So-and-so about your conversion, how you became a Christian? So he told him the second night. On the third night, the same thing happened. They are driving back to the hotel. The pastor in the back, he says to the deacon in the front, Brother John, why don't you tell our visiting speaker how you got saved? The visiting speaker spoke up and he says, well, you know, I've heard already how he got saved. I'm not really sure that he needs to tell me it again. I don't really need to hear it a, a third time. And the pastor says, I know you don't need to hear it, but he needs to keep telling it. And sometimes we need to keep telling it. Sometimes we need to hear it. And so we find then that Jacob has been brought back to the place of his testimony, the place of his conversion. And then in verse 8 we're told of a death. And it's a strange one. It's the death of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. We've not really encountered this woman much along the way. She has been referenced just as a nurse earlier on in chapter 24. Uh, She's a servant of the family. She came with Rebecca uh, out of her family when she went to marry Isaac. And no doubt this uh, woman had helped to raise Jacob and Esau. She was maybe an auntie figure or a grandmother figure in the, in the family and surprisingly you know whilst we're told about Deborah's death in verse 8 we're told nothing of Rebecca's death and yet Rebecca is certainly dead by this point. And it's kind of interesting that the Bible kind of mentions Deborah but doesn't mention Rebecca. And probably because Rebecca's story is not one that is covered in glory. When you look at her life, she, like her son, had been a schemer. It was her plan and her, her scheme that ultimately led to Jacob leaving home and to 30 years of, of misery. Of course, at that time, she thought his departure was just going to be for a short time. And didn't realize she would never see her son again. But Deborah was a familiar friend. And her death was a loss to Jacob. And he attends her funeral. And she's buried under an oak named Bakoth, Meaning the oak, oak of weeping. So in some ways this gravestone speaks to us of a place of revival. This is where Jacob decides to go back to Bethel. Now let's read verses 9 to 20 and see a gravestone that speaks of revelation. A place of revelation. God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padanaram Aram and blessed him. God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. And kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephra, and Rachel travailed, and she had hard labour. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, I shall have this son also. And it came to pass, as, she, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephra, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Now I want you to notice in verse 9 the word again. And God appeared unto Jacob again. How good is God to speak with us again? Especially when we have sinned and messed up so badly. You know sometimes we think God is never going to speak to us again. That we've crossed the line. That we've gone too far. That we have cut him off forever. But that is not our God. He's a faithful God. And so God speaks to us again, even when sometimes we have messed up, as Jacob had, so very badly. So what had God to say to Jacob? Well, in verses 11 and 12, he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that was given to Abraham and to Isaac and now to uh, Jacob. And you know, there, there are some Christians, and they're always seeking after some new thing. They're always looking for some new move of God. They're always looking for some fresh word from above, some new experience, some novel and sensational spiritual experience. Somehow God has to titillate them. But here God just repeats what Jacob already knew. Jacob didn't need something new. He needed a better grasp of what he already had. Instead of seeking friends for signs in the sky and visions and voices, we'd be far better getting to grips with the scriptures we have. Why would God give you something more if you're ignoring what He's already given you in His Word? That's why the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a watchman that needeth not, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God says. Here's my word. Study what you have. Learn what you have. Know what you have. But there are Christians who are running around with a Bible at a shut Oh God, speak to me. Oh God, what do you want me to do? It's in the book. Sometimes I wish they would hear a voice from heaven that would just say, read the Bible. That's what I want you to do. I want you to read the word. And so when God speaks to Jacob, he doesn't even bring him some new truth. He just gives him the old truth over again. Why would God give him the covenant repeated over again and again? Because the reality, friends, is that we are prone to forget the first thing. Look with me in 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. Notice what Peter says to these believers. Wherefore, he says to them, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Now notice, though ye know them. It's not new truth. It's established truth. He says, I will, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, as long as I'm in this body, as long as I'm alive. Peter's an old man by the stage to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, moreover I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. You know, sometimes as a preacher you feel like a broken record. You preach the same things over and over and over again. and Sometimes you think that people must get weary of it. But actually that's not the case, because the truth is we forget. Or we become jaded toward the old truths. And we need to be refreshed and we need to be revived by them. And so Peter had no qualms about speaking the old truths again and presenting what they already knew over and over and over. And indeed God has no qualms about bringing the covenant back to the mind of Jacob. Marking that place for future generations, Jacob raises an altar. He wants his family to know that this is where he first met the Lord. That this is where he first got saved. And right there in front of his wives, his children, his servants, he pours out a drink offering. He stains the ground beneath his feet, blood red. And he is in so doing, he's pointing to a day when the Savior would come and when the foundation of Calvary's cross would be covered, blood red on that hill. Now it's time for him to move on, which, which brings us to the gravesite of, the beloved, of his beloved wife, Rachel. Rachel's life is a sad life. You know, when you think about Rachel's life, She grew up in a home where her father hadn't shown her a great deal of affection, had treated her as personal property, had sold her off like she was just cattle. And on her wedding night, well, you know what happened. Her true love was given to another. She ends up vying constantly for his attention and fighting with her sister for that purpose. And then she's unable to bear children and she has to watch as her sister gives birth to one son after another, and she sees her husband's affection slipping uh, toward these children of, of her sisters. And, and she feels left out. And, and at last she bears him one son. And then here she gives birth to a second son and dies in childbirth. It's a very sad story. You know, Earlier in her life she had chided with her husband saying, Give me children or else I die. Oh my, be careful sometimes what we wish for. So that's exactly what happened. And as her son is born and her life is ebbing from her, in a whispered voice, she names the boy Benoni, son of my sorrow. Well, that was no name for a little boy, was it? Can you imagine growing up as a young boy? And and of course, in Bible times, names had significance with respect to their meaning. So when the little boy was told, your name is Benoni, son of my sorrow, and he would ask, well, what does that mean, Daddy? Why am I called that? Well, because your mother died giving birth to you. So he'd have to live with this burden all of his days. And Jacob, as a very wise father, said, no, 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 that's not a name he can bear. I'm going to give him a different name. I'm going to call him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Can you see the picture? Notice where he's born. He's born in verse 19. Verse 19 on the way to Ephra, which is Bethlehem. He's born at Bethlehem. Born at Bethlehem is a son. He's the son of sorrows. He's the son of the Father's right hand. It's a picture of Christ, the man of sorrows, who is acquainted with grief, who's born at Bethlehem, who dies upon the cross, who ascends into the heavens and sits even now at the right hand of his Father. On the one hand, Jesus is the son of sorrows, but on the other, he's the son of his father's right hand. You see, friends, there's not a drop of ink wasted in the word of God. It's important, every jot, every tittle is pointing us to Jesus. So Rachel dies just outside of Bethlehem. Her tomb still stands there to this day. You can visit her tomb. And her graveside marks a place of revelation where God yet again reiterates the covenant, and it brings a revelation of Christ. And then at the closing verses, we see a gravestone that marks a place of reunion. Let's look in verse 21. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah his father's concubine. And Israel heard it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun. the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came unto Isaac, his father, unto Mamre. Unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned, and the days of Isaac were a hundred and fourscore years, and Isaac gave up the ghost and died, and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Here is a gravestone that marks a place of reunion. Three times in verses 21 to 22, notice Jacob is referred to now by his new name. By Israel his life is surrendered to the will of God and the new man Israel has become far more dominant than the old man Jacob which is just as well given what is about to happen in his life because we read in verse 22 that Reuben seduces Bilhah Rachel's handmaid and the mother of two of Jacob's sons now it's a shocking affair it makes a you know it's just touched on briefly it's a very shocking event when you think about it and you have to say well what on earth was going through his mind What was Reuben thinking? That he would lie with Bilhah, Jacob's wife. Well, remember now, Reuben is the eldest of Jacob's sons. The first son of Leah. Verse 23, the sons of Leah. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And all of his life, although he's the firstborn in the family, all of his life, he and his mother have been playing second fiddle. You see, Leah was playing second fiddle to Rachel. And he was playing second fiddle to Joseph. And so all of his life he's been living in this, in this position where although he's the firstborn son, he's not being treated as the firstborn son. And his mother is not being respected as he believes his mother ought to have been. And so right now when Rachel passes away, Reuben has a fear. He has a fear that, that, his, that Rachel is going to be replaced by Bilha, not by Leah. And the Bilhah is going to become the the matriarchal figure of the home. And so he lies with her. He he deliberately goes in unto her and he has a reason for doing this it's a pure power play it's about his position and his mother's position in that home you see the same thing happening with Absalom and David you remember how that Absalom went and lay with David's concubines in a tent upon the roof of the palace so that everybody knew what he was doing why was he doing that it was a power play and the purpose of it is to put a wedge between the husband and his wives and that was certainly Reuben's purpose He did not want Bilhah elevated above his mother. He didn't want her playing second fiddle for the rest of her life. And so he makes this move with Bilhah so as to put this wedge between her and between Jacob and to make sure that she does not ascend to that particular position. This was not a crime of passion, friends. This was family politics. Politics is often a dirty business. Whether in a family, or in a nation, or in a workplace, or even sometimes in the church. You know, few things are uglier, I think, than a man who is jockeying for position. And it happens all the time, and and God hates it. Let me be honest with you. You know, church politics has marred more good fellowships than we might care to know. People feeling they should be an elder. They should be a deacon. Or they should be a Sunday school teacher. Or they should have some other or position. Feeling that somehow or other they've been overlooked. That they've been bypassed. That their gifts haven't been recognized. That there's no, there's no realization of, of how wonderfully blessed we are to have them. Do you want to know how important you are to this church? And I say this as pastor all the way through the elders, the deacons, and everybody else. If we, the moment we think we're really important, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. Fill a bucket full of water. Put your hand in it. Pull it out and see the size of the hole you leave. No one is indispensable. You know what I like about our church saying? My name is on a slider that can change. I actually like that. Now, it's on there, <laughs> obviously, with a view to saving money at a future time when I'm no longer the pastor. But I also like it because it's a reminder to me that I'm not indispensable, that I can be replaced. And sometimes we get above our station and and sometimes we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And so you have men who are protecting their position or men or women who are seeking after a position or men who are acting like Absalom, currying favor among the membership in order to seek election to some particular office. Let me tell you something. That's pathetic. It's a sin. You don't be elected to the office of an elder or a deacon because you're popular. You're elected to those offices because hopefully the church sees something in you that tells them you're fulfilling the qualifications of the office. Pretty soon we're going to be electing deacons in our AGM a few months down the line here, a few weeks down the line. And and here's the thing I want to say to you. When it comes to the election of deacons, you don't elect somebody because they're your friend or because they're funny or because everybody likes them or because they're personable or because they have money. Or any other reason. What you do is you go and you look at the qualifications of a deacon. And you ask yourself. Do these people or this person fulfill those qualifications? Oh Christians get caught up in politics. Politics in the church. Politics in the nation. Let me tell you something. The Bible says it's better to put your trust in the Lord. Than to have confidence in man. Some of us put confidence in men. And we think that some of the people up in Stormont are going to be the answer to all our ills. I've got news for you. People have been saying that since Noah was a lad. Those men are not the answer to our ills. Nor indeed are, are the men that sit in Westminster. Or any other place of governance you care to look at. You know, I see Christians sometimes and they're rejoicing because this person got elected and that person got elected as though everything's going to be better now. And you know what? It never is. It never is. Oh, be careful about being sucked into politics. So after Bilhah commits this terrible sin and he jockeys for his mother's position and his position in the home, we find a listing of the son's of Jacob, And, you know, Reuben is listed as the firstborn. He's the only one who has that comment or has a comment by his name, as if to say, watch out for this one. Now, we will come back to Reuben in chapter 49, because although Jacob doesn't act against him here, later on, Jacob will show that he remembers this moment, and he will punish Reuben further down the line. Here's the thing that Reuben forgot. He forgot that promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Psalm 75, 6 and 7. Promotion comes from the Lord. And then at the close of this chapter, and indeed at the close of Jacob's history, before the Spirit turns our attention to Joseph, Isaac dies. Verse 27, And Jacob came unto Isaac, his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were a hundred and four score years. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now we're told that Isaac dies. After all that time, Jacob finally returns home And it looks like he's hardly arrived home five minutes then his aged father dies. In fact, he's been home at this point about 12 years with Isaac before Isaac passes away. So he gets 12 years with his old dad. And when he dies, we're told Isaac was 180 years old. Now, he lived a lot longer than he expected. Back in chapter uh, 27, if you want to just quickly look there, chapter 27, notice what he says at the outset of that chapter. And, of course, this is the chapter that really marks the beginning of Jacob's journey uh, away from home and and, uh, off to Laban's farm. It says in uh, verses 1 to 2, And it came to pass that when Isaac was old, And his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He called Esau, his eldest son, and said unto him, My son, and he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. you know how old he was at that point? He was 138 years old. (laughs) He thought he was going to die when he was 138 years old. He doesn't die till he's 180 years old. I remember many years ago sitting in a gospel mission at Bray Hill Baptist Church. I think Ivan Thompson was the preacher. I can't remember. I think brother Ivan Thompson was the preacher. And each night of the mission, I was sitting on the front row, as you, as you do when you're a pastor, you often sit in the front row, and I'm sitting on the front row, and the brother was preaching, and, and I kept thinking to myself, "I'm going to die soon." I don't know why that thought came into my head. There was nothing wrong with me physically. In fact, I was far better off then than I am now. (laughs) (coughs) There was no reason to think I was going to die, logically, at that point in time. But I kept having this thought, I'm going to die soon. And so as Ivan was preaching, I was thinking, I wonder should I get Ivan to preach my funeral? And then I began to think about the various preachers I knew and who I'd like to have preach my funeral. I was like 33 or 5 years of age, something like that. And I think about all these preachers. Maybe I should have him preach my... No, he'll go on too long. No, have have somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about all these different preachers. I could have no reason in the world for that. None whatsoever. And I spoke to an older brother about this sometime later who was a missionary to Brazil. And he told me a similar story. He said, said, and he said to me, you know, he says, the devil put that thought in your head. The devil's trying to discourage you with the idea that your journey's over and there's no point in going on. And he said, when I was in Brazil, he says, I went off on a trip sometime for several, several days out into the jungle or wherever he was. He went off out into, to, to, be, to do mission work. And he left his wife at home. And his wife became overcome with the idea that he, she would never see him again, that he would die. And she began to plan for his funeral. And she was thinking some of the same things. Who will I have to come and speak? And you know, how will I get his body home? And she's starting to work through some of the logistics of losing her husband. And then he arrives home. And he opened the front door and she looked at him and she said, what are you doing here? I thought you were dead. <laughs> you see, the old devil puts that thought in there. And some of us are dead before our time. Poor old Isaac thought he was dying at 138, and he lived to be 180 years of old of age. You know, we mustn't preempt God. Listen, David had an old friend by the name of Barzillai. He invites him to come to his table and to his palace, and to sit with him and to enjoy his fellowship. Here's how Barzillai answered that question, that 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 invitation. He said, "How long have I to live that I should go up with the king unto Jerusalem?" And he missed the opportunity because he thought he didn't have long to live. He Missed the opportunity to sit at the king's table. You know, you don't know how long you have to live. And I don't know how long I have to live. And that's not what matters. What matters is that we're alive. And whilst we're alive, we should serve the Lord every day of our life. You know, there are some brothers here and they've been through some difficulties with their health and I can see you know, them thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm not long for this world. But I'll tell you what, some of these men might well outlive some of us. By far. And so we have no business curtailing our lives and our minds and our hearts without any real reason to do that. We don't know how long we have. So we take each day as it comes and we serve the Lord. That's what we do. Finally, we read that Esau and Jacob reunited to bury their father in the closing passages, closing verses of this passage. It says, And Jacob gave up the ghost, verse 29, and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. You know, friends, that was the last time in history that the Arab and the Jew fully cooperated with each other. That was it. You know, I laugh at these politicians. We were talking about politicians earlier. They're going to solve the Middle East crisis. No, they're not. They'll never solve the Middle East crisis. There's not a politician alive who will solve the Middle East crisis. The Middle East crisis will be solved when the Lord Jesus comes again. That's when it'll be solved. So this gravestone, as you read it, his sons Esau and Jacob buried him Marks a place of reunion. It's the last time these two brothers will work with each other. But as we close this morning, I want to reflect on some practical truths from this passage, which, as I said, is really, you know, tying up loose ends. Here's some of the truths that we discover here. First of all, we find the truth that we must rid our lives of every idol if we're to be consecrated to God. There's the first truth. Here's the second truth. (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. that when our hearts have drifted, Bethel is the place we must be. We must find ourselves in the house of God. We must wind our way to the house of God. Thirdly, the truth that over and over it pays to rehearse the story of our lives, to remember our conversion. It pays for us to tell our story again and again. Fourthly, there's the truth that we must ever remind ourselves of the fundamentals of the faith. We must go back again and again to the basics, to the first things, and accept that grasping God's word is far more needful than than, uh, visionary or sensational spiritual experiences. And finally, the truth that political maneuvering is often willful and dangerous, that God never honors it. Rather, we must trust that promotion comes from him. And even if we do feel bypassed, we're far better to wait on the Lord and let him resolve it. Jacob is at last the patriarchal head of the home. But as we will see as we move on in the story and the focus of Genesis, we'll see that the focus changes at this point. And the spotlight of the Spirit is now going to shine on one of the most remarkable lives in all the Word of God, the life of Joseph. And that's where we'll pick up, Lord willing, next time.